Unbelievable. Okay, that's it. We're live. Okay, here we go. At the beginning of the Aleph bet, uh, let's see. Aleph, strong, power, leader, ox head. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that they are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways are steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utter for, utterly forsake me. Don't utterly forsake me. Okay, let's see here. We'll read this day in Christian history. Today is the oh, I don't know, 19th of May. Okay, 19th of May. Why don't I remember these things? Okay, she was England's first evangelical queen. Who is it? Um, wait, that's um, uh, who's the gal who was burned at the stake? I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, the daughter of an English earl, Anne Boleyn, was that who you were thinking of? Uh, was born in 1507. She and her older sister Mary had the honor of going to France and serving as children in waiting to the sister of Harry VIII. Mary, who married King Louis XII of France, he died only 82 days after the wedding. Anne remained in France as an aide to Queen Claude, the 15-year-old wife of 20-year-old Francis I, the king who succeeded Louis XII. While 10-year-old Anne was in France, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. The Reformation quickly spread into France, reaching a number of the nobility. One of the persons with whom Anne became friends was Marguerite de something, I can't pronounce it, the sister of Francis I and future Queen of Navarre, who became one of the leaders of the French Reformation. Whether it was through Marguerite or someone else, Anne became a devout Christian. Recalled to England in 1521, Anne became part of King Henry VIII's court along with her sister, Mary, who became a mistress of the king. Within a year, when Anne was still 15, she caught the eye of King Henry VIII, who began plotting to marry her. The problem was that he was already married to Catherine of Aragon, Nearing the end of her childbearing years, Catherine had not yet produced the male heir that Henry desperately desired. When Henry asked Anne to become his mistress, she fell on her knees before him, saying, I think your majesty, most noble and worthy king, speaketh these words in mirth to prove me, without intent of defiling your princely self, who I find thinks nothing less than of such wickedness which would just which would justly procure the hatred of God and of your good queen against us. In 1527, Henry VIII determined to divorce Catherine. Informing Anne of his plan, she agreed to marry him after his divorce. However, in order to obtain a divorce, Henry needed the permission of the Pope, and negotiations were painfully slow. Finally, in 1532, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and the Evangelical Boleyn family was able to get Thomas Cranmer, a convert of the Reformation, selected as the next Archbishop. Meanwhile, Cranmer was in Germany consulting the university theologians on Henry's divorce problems and himself 
marrying the niece of one of Lutheran of the Lutheran reformers by November 1532, <coughs> convinced that once Cranmer was Archbishop of Canterbury, a divorce would be forthcoming, and began living with her future husband. By the end of December, she suspected that she was pregnant, and in January, Anne and Henry were married secretly, since the king's divorce from his first wife had not yet been granted. Thomas Cranmer was installed as Archbishop of Canterbury on March 30th of 1533. He immediately granted Henry's divorce, and Parliament severed the ties of the Church of England with Rome, making Henry the eighth head of the church. As queen, Anne was the first to demonstrate how royalty could aid the Reformation. She appointed evangelical bishops and aided the evangelical cause through her carefully chosen personal chaplains, Nicholas Ridley and others. Her personal life demonstrated her faith. Whenever she, <coughs> excuse me, whenever she dined with her husband, she would discuss the Bible with him. She also helped distribute Bibles. As long as she was alive, every parish in England was required to have an English Bible in its church. More important, she was a student of the Bible, preferring to read the Bible in French, the language in which she first heard the gospel. Henry's affection for Anne faded when, her, when during her three years as queen, she failed to produce a male heir, giving birth to only a daughter, the future queen Elizabeth I. Having fallen in love with Jane Seymour, the king conspired to have Anne falsely convicted of adultery, and on May 19, 1536, Anne Boleyn was beheaded. Her last words were, To Christ I commend my soul. Jesus, receive my soul. Anne Boleyn was a great Christian, but like King David, she used poor judgment in the area of moral restraint and began living with Henry VIII before they were married. How do you react when a Christian young woman around you becomes pregnant out of wedlock? Uh, I was going to make a joke. I won't. Um, Jesus said, all right, stoner, but let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. All right. So there you go with that. That was just a crazy, I'm not sure why they even put all that I'm in there. I'm not sure but, either. Yeah. I was thinking Joan of Arc, but she was on the other side. Yeah, of the no, side. She, was, yeah she was over the other side. Um, so um, let's see here. We got some prayer requests here. Uh, I mentioned... Three weeks in church, not in Bible class, um, a guy that needed help in the Philippines, um, you know, financial help, and it, they still do. They're going to have bills forever, um, but uh, it looks like he's not going to make it. He, they took him back to the hospital, and I saw some photos of him today, and he he's, just looks terrible. I've known the guy for years. Uh, my friend, my prayer request, if it's all right for me to ask you, is to include us in your prayers. This is his wife. Uh, she's a Filipino girl. In Dennis's last month, he kept on questioning his place in heaven. I hope you could pray for him. For my sanity, I ask in prayer that God will meet all of our financial needs, especially with regard to our hospital expenses, and for peace for my children to accept the inevitable for Dennis's family so that we can they can be reunited and at peace with one another. So that that's her prayer request, and I just feel so bad because she's going to be stuck with just miles of bills and and uh, a husband that it does not look like he's going to make it. Um, Jim Jones, I mentioned him, was supposed to have triple bypass surgery, and then um, he had that delayed. He went in the day before he had a stroke, and so uh, the poor guy, we need to keep him in prayer and his wife, Betty, because she's probably beside herself by now because of this. 
Um, Jeff Seifert, who's been here, he's from Oregon, and he came to Florida because obviously Oregon was unfriendly to people that uh, did not receive vaccinations, and they would not treat him. And uh, he needed some stuff, and he came to Florida to get it, and he's been to the church a couple times, and he attended online. He died yesterday, so we want to pray for his wife. They just bought a house. and Sarah. Yes, Sarah. And uh, just difficult times for them. So we want to keep Jeff's wife, Sarah, in prayer. And uh, then Bruce and Jackie, a lot of you know them out in uh, Missouri. And Bruce just recently got a new job after having lost one. And uh, now he's been let go from there. They're drawing down the company. And uh, they started with him because he's in an inner uh, management position. And it's, it's like when the hospital needs to cut up, down, they always cut out the RNs because they don't do anything. Whereas the LPNs all work, the RNs do paperwork. And so um, they're the easiest ones to cut. And poor Bruce, you know, he's the newest guy and he's in the mid-level management. So uh, he and I think, I can't remember how many he told me, but quite a few other people got let go. So now they're back to the same situation they were in before. And that's gotta be really stressful. So we pray for them. And then Austin, who's always here, is not here because he's got a cold. He's had two COVID tests and he, he, he doesn't think he has that. And then finally, I mentioned Emma on uh, Sunday, girl that works at the deli in the mall I take care of. And she, like 30, maybe 35 at the most, she had a stroke. And on Saturday, I went in to visit her and uh, she was laying there. They had to do brain surgery to release the pressure and everything. And she looked terrible. But I was there just a couple hours ago and she, they had her sitting up. She can move the left side like this and her left leg she can lift and hold, but that's all she can do. Her right arm didn't move, but she can also start making some sounds. I mean, she's, you know, I prayed with her and she said, amen. That's about the only intelligible word she said, but uh, she uh, uh, keep Emma in prayer because she's got a long way ahead of her, a long way. And she's got a daughter that needs to be taken care of by the family now. Wow, but I'm so, I walked in there, I was so happy because on Saturday I thought, oh, how is she ever gonna get out of this? And there she is sitting up and she's able to at least kind of muddle through, muddle through things. So uh, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just got a lot of list of people here that we want to lift up to you. And of course, there are many other people that have difficulties that uh, I've either missed or that uh, have not said something. And Lord, we just lift all of them up to you. And uh, we just pray that your hand will be with your people and uh, just help them through their trials and their troubles and uh, financial difficulties and, and losses of jobs, physical problems. Lord, you're aware of every single one of them. They're your people and they are not unknown to you. So we lift them up to you and... Uh, we just, Larry, uh, very bad stomach problems. I'm going to lift her up as well. Lord, you just, you know these things, and we just appeal to you for them. And also we pray for this class, that it will be conducted properly, and that your word will be taught properly. And if something is not right that is said today, please alert us to it so that we can uh, make the corrections that need to be made. We certainly would not want to intentionally manipulate or twist your word for whatever agenda, but rather to teach what is uh, appropriate. So please let us know that. We love you. We thank you for the chance to meet here and to enter into your word. What a precious word it is. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.
All right, we are going to be in uh, Philippians, Philippians 3, verse 14 today is where we're going to start. It's the end of a paragraph, so I'll go to the beginning of the paragraph, pressing towards the goal. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of what of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have been taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. He says in this, ver in this version, the New King James Version, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call instead of attaining heaven. He says the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's definitely a translational difference there. It's not just a, you know, a, a, and this is a little more uh, complicated as far as which one is right and which one isn't. But um, let's see here. Paul now explains reaching forward to those things which are ahead, which he referred to in the previous verse. Okay, it said, um, where was that? Starts in 13. <coughs> Brother and I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's uh, explaining that, which he referred to. The sum of them is the prize. He will now mention <clears throat> that prize that he will now mention. In order to get this prize, he says that I press toward the goal. The word for press here indicates to pursue with all haste. For example, it is used when a hunter is chasing a catch. Every fiber of Paul's being was directed toward the goal. That, and, and that's evident. When you read his words, it's just as evident as can be that everything he is doing is for that goal. And, uh, you know, I could not say that's the case with me. Throughout the week, I've got all kinds of things to do, and I've got a goal, and at the end of the week, that is the end goal is to meet what we're talking about in Scripture, you know, obviously the goal of Christ Jesus, the upward call, but throughout the week you get distracted. You get this and you get that. And there's all kinds of little things that are pulling you away. Um, Paul, I don't know if he had those type of things or if he was just able to completely focus on what, we, what he was doing. I think he but just didn't write about it. He might not have just written about it, but I know that, like, uh, I got a, uh, a photo in the... Uh, email a couple days ago and I finally got to it this morning at the mall it's like Charlie there's a light outside and somebody took a photo of it and it's all black and they said there's um, you know uh, obviously some bugs have built homes all around it and I said okay I'll get that and I finally got to it this morning and I went out and it's just mud daubers all over a four foot fluorescent pole or light you know one of those four foot lights and they kind of shine towards a building and uh so, you know, you're doing that, you're doing all these kind of things, and you're getting misdirected, and you stop thinking about the goal, the prize in Christ Jesus. And it's not that, you know, I, I'm not conscious of Jesus being there. I am, but, I mean, I've got these other things that have to be done. And he's talking about, he's pressing towards the goal. Everything he is doing is set for that, okay? And, uh, you know, there are other things that pull you away during the week, you know, like maybe getting your finger hit with a chainsaw. You don't think about the goal at that time. But look at this. It's working, and I've got one little bit of skin still left, and I can tell that there's going to be some bumps here. It's, it's all bumped up when I close it. So I think that's permanent. But 
everything works. I'm so thankful. I wasn't sure until really this week because, you know, you just don't know. But I was doing some work in the garage and I hit it. Wow, did that hurt. Whoa, that was just ouch. But it's other than that, we're in really good shape. So I'm thanking Lord for that. But I pressed toward the goal. Um, when a hunter is catching a catch, that is the example. Every fiber of Paul's being was directed towards this goal. The word for goal is skopos. It is used only this once in the New Testament. It is where the English word scope comes from, such as a scope on a rifle, which is used for target shooting. Okay, so um, Paul was wholly directed towards this goal, which is the ultimate objective of the life of faith that we that a uh, believer possesses. Now, when you think of the word episcopos, okay, which is the episcopos, right? Uh, that's where that word comes from. And then we eventually get the word episcopal from that. And what that is, is an overseer. You've got epi, over. Is that what you were thinking of? Because I saw oh, your I face no was, idea. okay. <laughs> I just saw your face was wincing and I thought, well, how can it only be that once in the Bible? But the word scopos means like you're peering at something and episcopos is somebody, epi, like epidermis is over. And then scopos would be to see, and so that would be. And I thought that's what you were wincing about, but okay, you were just wincing. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, so that's where the word scope comes from. Okay, Paul was wholly directed towards this goal, which is the ultimate objective of the life of faith that a believer possesses. It is the state of glorification which will be granted when Christ returns for his people. Okay, that's what. All of ours, our goal should be that, okay? Um, uh, talking about the state of glorification, our friend Jeffrey has died, okay? And it's an upsetting thing, obviously, for his wife and his family and, and uh, you know, but when I heard it, I, I just thought, you know, we were talking about this. It's not that I don't care, but I just am almost jealous that he is, you know, he is ready to meet Jesus now. He doesn't have this world to think about anymore. He knows the Lord. He knows he is secure in his salvation. And uh, it, 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 like I said, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I'm, I just feel like you're out of here. You're with Jesus. You know, the next time you open your eyes, that's what you're going to see. Whereas as long as we're here, we, we have to wake up and there's something wrong every day. There's something that's bringing you down, something that's, there's a lot of good. Don't get me wrong. I love the, the fun stuff I you know, look out the sunrise every morning and it's beautiful. And, you know, you've got you know, people that you can communicate with and things to hope for and things to anticipate, but there's always something that's nagging along the way as well. So uh, that won't be the case. When we, when we are glorified, that will not be the case. It'll just be glorious. It is the state of glorification which will be granted when Christ returns for his people. To Paul, this was what his earthly life was directed toward. It is the prize, which he now refers to. It is the word brabeon, which is the reward granted to a victor, and specifically the noted recognition, which is a result of that triumph. The only other time the word is used by Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me take you there and we'll see what he says there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and then he says there in verse... 24. Oh, where is it? 9.24. He says, uh, do you not know? That, oh, yeah. That those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. 
run in it, such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize, which that's inserted by them, it doesn't actually say it, but that's what he's talking about, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Okay, Jeff, is his destiny is set. He will receive his crown. He was the same believer in Jesus Christ. And as sad as it is for people that knew him personally and that enjoyed his presence, and especially that were close to him and will miss him every day, he's met the prize. It's time for him to be there. And that's what Paul is speaking of, okay? The prize then is the result of pursuing the upward call, as Paul says, of God in Christ Jesus. This phrase is rich in theological significance. The term for call is kalesis. It indicates, and this is helps word studies, a calling used of God inviting all people to receive his gift of salvation with all his blessings that go with it. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you wouldn't use that definition because obviously God isn't just calling people. He's preordaining people and he's predestining them. But this is what the word means. God is calling. It's used of God inviting all people. God is not going to reject somebody for salvation if they want to be saved and they call on Jesus, okay? But if, if it was a Calvinist and, and that you were just a done deal, there'd be no straining. That's right. Why would, no you strain? why would you strain? Why would you... Why would any of this apply? It's like it doesn't matter. Well, let's, okay, let's just take all that out. Let me just cross all of that out. Okay, and then I'll be a Calvinist and I'll have less work to do. How's that? Okay, it's just crazy. It is. Okay, Uh, in other words, the word call, Paul's word call itself signifies that a (laughs) voluntary act of the will is made based on what God has done in Christ Jesus. Okay. It negates the, oh, you know, here, I had this in the commentary. I should have gone ahead and checked that earlier. It negates the idea of being predestined as taught by Calvinists, which says that one is regenerated in order to believe. Okay, like I said, we might as well just take that out of there and then our life will be so much easier in our teaching. We'll just say, okay, you're saved, you're not saved, now we can all go home. Right? just It's so simple. I don't understand the thinking of these people, but whatever. Such an act would not require a calling, but God has done something in Christ Jesus which calls out for men to respond. This is, as Paul says, the upward call. Other versions say the high calling, the heavenly calling, and so on. The word indicates above. In this case, it implies heaven. And how did yours read again? Heavenward. Heavenward. God has called me heavenward. God has called me heavenward. Okay, so that that's God calling, and he's saying that it's this way. This one says the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I guess it's kind of the same thing, but it's going at it from a different approach. Okay, so at least I see the difference now. The word indicates above. It implies heaven. It is the shout of, come unto me, which draws our souls to Christ, who is in the heavenlies, awaiting our response. This was Paul's greatest desire, and it is that it is what wholly consumed him. It did not mean that he didn't stay active here on earth. In fact, just the opposite is true. He cleaned mud daubers off of lights, just as people in Sarasota, Florida will do someday 2,000 years from now. Okay, no, actually, I just added that in. I didn't put that in my commentary, but uh, in fact, just the opposite is true. It means that he did all he could as an apostle a teacher, an evangelist, and a Christian brother to accomplish the work set before him. 
His earthly life and walk was the set out course for this high calling. It is what would bring him to the prize resulting from his triumphant work. And we know that he did other things because he supported himself. He was a tent maker, okay. And because he was a tent maker, he could have sat around with, um, what was their names, Apollos and Priscilla, and they made their tents together and they could have Aquila. Aquila. What did I say? Apollos. Yes, thank you. Aquila and Priscilla. And they could have sat there and talked about the upward calling Christ Jesus while they're sewing tents together. Whatever. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it, it's good to not let the Lord get too far from your thoughts in whatever you're doing during the day. At the same time, if you're doing something dangerous, you want to focus on what you're doing. Okay. And that's why when I'm driving and I've got the Bible going, I sometimes will completely forget that the Bible is going because I got something important that I need to focus on instead of, you know. Uh, so it's, I try to focus on the word throughout the day. I try to do it without getting distracted, but there are times where you just need to refocus on what you're doing and uh, that you just keep Jesus in your mind at the, the But here's uh, the point. Present. You are into the Bible much more than I am. I know that. And I feel like I'm into it a fair amount. And what if you weren't, and it just like topically, how would that work? You wouldn't be able to because you wouldn't think to be able to. No, well, that's and right. You'd you just like fall apart. I don't know how people can go through their day, I'm talking about Christian people, how they can go through their day without reading the Bible. I, I don't know. I could not function without thinking on it, without reading it. You know, and it may just be me. I don't have a great memory. I forget things very quickly. And because I do, uh, I, I just have a feeling that if I didn't read it for a couple of months, I'd be so far from it that I would just not even, I don't know. I, I, I just, I find it very, very hard to get through the day without, uh, to imagine somebody getting through the day without reading the Bible. Right. And if you are in this class or if you're listening now and you don't read your Bible, I'm not trying, yes, I am. I'm trying to shame you. Um, uh, I, I just don't understand how people can do that because it is, you know, even Moses was saying, this is your life. And it continues on all the way through the Bible in the New Testament. This is our life because this is what tells us of Jesus. And it's, you know, you go into some churches and there's this disconnect where, you know, well, I don't need to read the Bible. I know Jesus. Well, where is Jesus revealed? Where, where does it tell us about him? And so what Jesus are you talking about? Because if it's not the one that's revealed in the pages of Scripture, then I'm not sure what you're talking about. And that's how we get into these crazy, literally crazy churches nowadays that we read about in the Prophecy Update from time to time. They do things that are so far from anything related to the Bible. It's not the same Jesus. It's not even... Many people don't even bring their Bibles to church. They don't bring their Bibles to church. And, you know, that's... I just don't, I don't get the thought process, you know, and I don't want to belittle people. If they're saved, they're saved. But I just don't understand the, the thinking of saying, well, I, I really don't need to know the Bible. Well, then you don't need to know Jesus. If you don't need to know Jesus, then what are you doing? What is your life purpose for? Why did you call on Jesus? Well, I was a sinner. Well, do you know what to do about it now that you've been saved? I mean, there's there's a process that we need to follow through with. I don't know. I mean, it's just very hard for me to even contemplate that because when I really came to understand who Jesus was in my life 30 at 36 years old, right down the road, all I could do 
was read this word. That's all I could, I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do. I'd get home after reading at 10 hours at church and I'd be home and I'd say, you know, when is dinner? I'd be in 45 minutes. Okay, and I'd sit down and I'd read the Bible for 45 minutes. And I'd think of something during dinner and so I'd open the Bible during dinner and I'd refer to it. My kids must have looked at me like I was crazy, but that's, it's, I just need to know what, what this says. I need to know what it's telling me. How does it fit into the bigger picture of what's going on? Then that desire doesn't end today. It goes on in me in the morning and in the afternoon and in the night. And, you know, during the day, somebody will ask me a question. And instead of just answering it, I'll pull up the Bible online and I'll, you know, am I right on this? Because it's important. Whatever. the uh, We'll read that again. His earthly life and walk was the set out course for this high calling. It is what would bring him to the prize resulting from his triumphant work. The crown of life is guaranteed, but that crown of life carries with it other rewards which are a result of what we do now. Okay? If you are saved, and you know, somebody was emailing me. I can't remember what the context was this past week, and I emailed them back, and I said, you know, this is a problem with us in the world today, is that we have divided things up so much. And the reason why is because we have the Bible. We've got access to it. We've got different translations of it. And so we can really develop very precise <coughs> theology. And what I told them is that for most of the church age and still in most of the world, people don't have Bibles and they never have had a Bible. And you think about that. There was one Bible in a town, say in Germany, and it was very expensive. It cost you know, what we would today say tens of thousands of dollars to write out this beautiful book. And it was kept in the church and it was locked in the church because if it got stolen, they would have no Bible at all. And so that's where the term chained to the pulpit is, okay? The Bible is chained to the pulpit. Now we use it in a negative sense. Oh, it's just the pastor, you know, he, he keeps it and that's, that's all we need. We don't need it in the congregation. But uh, back then it was for a purpose is because it was very expensive and it meant a great deal to the people. But the people didn't have any theology. They heard the message of Jesus and they'd hear a sermon once a week. And if the pastor, you know, read the Bible, he probably didn't study it a great deal. It would have been a very rare thing for somebody to be a true scholar because, you know, you've got this book and you've got a couple other books and that's it. Whereas now we're so overwhelmed with commentaries, with, you know, scholarly insights, with all the patterns that we can pull out of the Bible that were impossible to pull out before that we can do now in two seconds with a computer. We can find these acrostics and we can, you know, search for chiasms. You know, what I do when I look for a chiasm, and I just found one in this past week's sermon that I was typing from Joshua 2. There's a chiasm that I pulled out of there. And the way that I say, I think, I think this will form a chiasm. And instead of writing it all out, which is very long and laborious, I just copied that passage from the internet and I put it onto my own document and I start laying it out. And it takes what might have taken me five or six hours a hundred years ago, I can do in five or six minutes. And, you know, it, it took a while to consider and what is the Lord telling me there? But we are so over-Bibled over in this world that we forget that Jesus saves people based on the gospel. That was the point I was telling him. You know, there's so much of this division of people and, ah, oh, he can't be saved because, you know, he doesn't go to a Baptist church or he can't be saved. And we, we throw all these things in there because 
we know that Baptists will read their Bible. I'm, I'm just saying that as an example because a lot of Baptists don't. I'm just saying we know that Baptists read their Bibles and we know that Episcopals don't read their Bibles. But the Episcopal guy that heard Jesus and accepted the premise is just as saved as the Baptist that reads the Bible his whole life. Okay, We need to be careful not to forget that in our, our increased knowledge, which is a good thing. You know that I believe that. I believe everybody should have increased knowledge in Scripture. But in our increased knowledge of Scripture, we also need to be uh, humble enough to recognize that, uh, one, we don't know it all, and two, the person that doesn't know it all less than us is just as saved as we are if he is saved. Okay, That's the point I was making there. We just need to be careful with that. Anyway, the crown of life is guaranteed, but that crown of life carries with it, and this is what made me think of that, other rewards which are a result of what we do now. And those rewards will be based solely on how they conform to this word, okay? And how they are based on one word. What's that one word? Faith. faith. Deeds of faith. And so if you don't have this word, but you know enough to say, because the pastor told you this is the right thing to do as a Christian, you're in uh, Germany in 1542, there's one Bible and the pastor is reading you the Bible and it says this is what your responsibility as a Christian are and you go out in faith and do it, you will receive your word for that. If it is in accord, if the pastor taught properly and what you do is in accord with it and you're doing it in faith, you will receive your reward, okay? But as I said, the more you know this word, the more responsible you are toward the Lord because of your actions and the more you should be willing to say, I'm going to be obedient to this word. It's an important thing. It's just an important thing. Everything that, that we were talking about this uh, before classes that uh, he was saying, does it seem like time is really just rushing by lately? And my answer was yes, and the reason why is, and then he remembered and he said the same thing at the same time as me, our lives are longer because when we're three years old, a year is one third of our lifespan. Now that we're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, it's a much less, less portion of our lifespan. And because it's a less portion of our lifespan, it seems like it's going quicker. If you understand what I'm saying, to a little kid, the next week or next month, that's a long time in relation to how old they are. But with us, a month, is, it's just gonna be here in no time. And so, yes, it seems like January was just here and now we're in May, but that's because we've gone through so many Januaries to Mays in our life. And so it just, everything seems sped up. And then he made a point that, imagine what it will be like when we're in heaven, when we're in eternity with the Lord. Then the whole time of the span of man from Adam until the rapture is, we'll say 6,000 years. It's gonna be like a blink a blink of an eye. That's going to be nothing compared to the tens of thousands of <coughs> millennia that we will be alive. Forever means forever. And so everything that we're doing in this really short and quickly ending life that we have, everything that we have in that eternal state will be based on what we're doing right now. You put that in perspective and you'll think, well, I better do more than just go to church on Sunday morning and sing a bunch of songs and then leave and go do my life. I'd better prepare for what's ahead. Okay, that's just what I recommend to you. You can do whatever you want. It's your life and you know, that's fine. But I really, really recommend to people that they take the time now to learn the word and to get other people involved in it too. Get excited about it enough where you are getting them excited about it because they also will be spending eternity with you if 
they are saved. And you want them to have the fullness of their time and glory. Whatever it means. I, I have no idea. Whatever he has prepared, it's going to be a really sweet deal. That's all I know. So I'm ready to go anytime and, and start that sweet deal. And until then, though, we're just going to keep pressing on for the upward call that is found in Christ Jesus. And if it's another 50 years, great. Whatever he has set aside for me, every single day we will do our very, very best to uh, honor him with our lives and... Uh, there you go. Life application. We have a high calling by God in Christ Jesus. We are to respond to that call by receiving him and his work. He's the one that did everything. When that is done, we still have a course set before us in order to receive the final reward of that high calling. Too often we want the reward without living out the race which is taking us to that reward. But the race is what gets us to our end goal. Let us keep our eyes on the prize, but not forget that rewards accompany the prize, which is based on the race we've run, okay? If you're in a race and you say, well, that's the goal down there and I want to get down there, you're not just going to say, okay, everybody, I'll meet you down at the end. You're going to race as hard as you can to beat them because you're the one that wants the reward that's at the end. What's the same thing with us? We're not competing against other people, though. We're competing against ourselves. That's what's happening. The Lord is the prize. We need to run that race and we need to get to the end. And what Paul is saying is, I'm going to strive with every fiber of my being as I'm running towards Christ. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, Burke is very good at that. He sends out all these wonderful things every day and, and uh, they're very uplifting. Uh, what was the one, it was about 10 pages long that you sent, I think it was this morning, maybe yesterday, what was it about? Um, you send me so many things, I have to sort them out in my head at the end of the day. There was one that was very good, though. Um, I responded to you. What was that? Anyway, I'll think of it maybe before. Peace. peace! Thank you, peace! It was a great one. And the, you, do you know who the very last commentator on the last page was? Do you remember? Begins with... Barnes. Ah, good! Okay, Albert Barnes. I was going to say it begins with Albert and ends with Barnes, but you beat me. So, yeah, see? That was very well put together. Thank you. Okay, um, let's see here. We are in 3.15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Okay, little different, not much. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Okay, it's close, but a little different. Okay, therefore, the word therefore is given based on what he has said in verses 12 through 14. He said he was not perfected, nor had he already attained the end goal. Instead, he was still in the race with all of his efforts directed toward those things which are ahead. He sums that up by saying, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. He is saying that those who are mature in their thoughts should conduct themselves in exactly the same manner. Concerning the word mature, he uses the adjective form of the same word he used in verse 12, which was used as a verb. There, the New King James Version translated it as perfected, but it is the same word. Because of this, there is certainly irony involved in the thought. He's contrasting himself to those who may claim that they are already perfected, which obviously they are not. 
Translating the words the same way will show his hint of irony. So I did this. Verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Verse 15, therefore, let us as many as are perfect. Okay, so you can see that. Obviously, his intent is that being perfected is not the same as being perfect. Rather, the choice of mature gives the correct sense, but it loses the irony. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Ephesians 4.13, Hebrews 5.14, and so on, where it indicates a state of maturity. But are, uh, in, he is, in essence, saying those who are mature are not already perfected, but are striving forward towards that goal. For the others, then, they fall short because they are, in fact, not perfected. Instead, they are not striving forward toward perfection, and thus they are immature. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but here you've got these people that say I'm already perfected. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Okay. One, you're not. It's like the people that say I'm living sinless. I, I've attained sinless state, okay? They're not. They're not even close to it. But Paul is saying, I haven't obtained that back in verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. But then he uses the same word. We translate it as mature, but by using the word perfect, it comes out. But think of perfect as mature. He's showing that those people that think that they're perfected aren't even striving for perfection because they think they're already perfected. They're immature Christians, and this could be somebody that's been a Christian for 100 years. It doesn't make any difference. If he says, I have attained sinless state, if he's a pastor, if he's a congregant, if he's somebody that doesn't go to church anymore because he says, I've attained sinless perfection. One, he hasn't, and two, he's not even doing what Paul is doing by saying that he is becoming mature or that we should be becoming mature. And three, he just lied. He just lied also. He's lying to himself, and he's, he's obviously deluded. But I'll read it again. Now that you kind of understand it, and, and hopefully this will get to you. Obviously, his intent is that being perfected, which he said in verse 12, is not the same as being perfect, or think of mature, okay? Rather, the choice of mature gives the correct sense, but it loses the irony. The same word is used, and I gave you the references, and so on, where it indicates a state of maturity. He is saying, in essence, those who are mature, like Paul, are not already perfected. Paul is mature because he's thinking, I need to do this in order to be pleasing to God. I need to do this in order to attain to the goal. So here we go. Those who are mature are not already perfected, but are striving forward towards that goal, which is what he just said in this verse. For the others, the ones that say that they're perfected, they fall short because they are, in fact, not perfected. Instead, they are not striving forward toward perfection, and thus they are immature. So here they are. They say that they're perfected when they're not even striving for the perfection that they're not perfected in. He's just making an ironic statement about them. He then notes this directly by saying, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. For those who are not striving forward, in the way noted in verses 12 through 14, they have a surprise coming. That's basically what Paul is saying to them. God will reveal to them their folly in pursuing the temporary instead of pursuing the eternal. They should have fixed their eyes on Christ 
and instead they have fixed their eyes on themselves and on the flesh. I'm perfected. I don't need to do anything more, okay? They're looking at themselves and how great they are when in fact they're just as fallen as everybody else. And here, as the point of this goes back to what Paul has been saying about himself earlier in the book of Philippians. What did he say? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. And all of that means nothing. Threw this, it all away. Yeah, he threw it all away. And here he is telling you that he's not even close to being perfected. He's just working as hard as he can to be perfected. He's not even close to it. Okay? And these people are saying they're perfected. God will reveal to them their folly in pursuing the temporary instead of pursuing the eternal. If they just read the Bible and they saw that the greatest Christian that set forth the doctrines of Scripture for us, that spent his whole life pursuing Christ, was telling them, I haven't attained it, so certainly you haven't attained it. Okay? It shows you the sober nature that he's trying to relate to these people. But because they think they're perfected, they're not going to read this and they're not going to get it. They're just going to spend their lives frittering them away, doing whatever they think that is right in their own eyes. What? Let us. I think it hinges on just let us. Yeah, let us. But the choice is, is up to the individual. That's right. You know, that, that you're exactly right. This, let us press. Yeah, let us. And he says it again and again and again. Let us. Let us. All right, he's not saying that he wants more food, lettuce, lettuce, or tomatoes. He's saying, let us, okay? Don laughed at that one. I, I, you know, I, I almost said that a minute ago. There's so much lettuce, lettuce. in here. In, in, in Hebrews, you, you read it, let us do this, let us, let us. Let us. It shows you the, the choice that he's given us. Absolutely, and here we are not doing it, you know? And that's why I, I just feel so good about people that uh, we've got this lady, uh, I mentioned her on Sunday, she sent me a couple of pens that she had made, and here's one of them. I said, I'm, I, she emailed today about something, and I said, I'll have that in my Bible class for my pen, okay? And uh, you have to look at it, but it's got all the Bibles that I laid out on the floor oh, yeah, in that yeah, picture. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, she emailed a while ago and said, I'm, or wrote the letter and sent me these, and she said, I'm almost done with Exodus. And then today she said, I finished Exodus, and I also finished Jonah. And this is a person that is literally pursuing right. the Word of God, okay? And when I hear that, and when I think of the people that attend the church, and this isn't to butter anybody up, it's just true. They are pursuing the Word of God. That's why they attend a church where things are really complicated, where it's very difficult at times, and they have to email, I don't know what you were talking about there, and can you please explain that to me, okay? That means a lot to me, that there are people that are willing to do this because it's so much easier. You know, these people here, they can go to a church where they got songs and then they get a, a sermon. And I've said this before, there's nothing wrong with that. Sermon lightweight, there's nothing wrong with it. Some people, that's all they need in their lives. But the people that really pursue the word, I know that the people that attend this church do. And it means a lot to me to know that, that we are learning this together. Because when somebody challenges me on something, I'm learning as well. You know, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that. Or let me study that some more. And you come up with a new insight. It, it's just worth it. It's worth the headache. It's worth the long hours. And it's worth the difficulty to understand what we are being told in this word. Okay? As I said, those people that don't do that, the ones that think that they're already perfected, okay, the ones that whatever is going on in their heads, they have a surprise coming. God will reveal to them their folly in pursuing the temporary instead of pursuing the eternal. They should have fixed their eyes on Christ and instead they have fixed their eyes on the flesh, on themselves. While they should have been 
concerned about circumcision of the heart, they're having parts of their body removed, a body which could corrupt and return to the earth. Whatever was not being done with the ultimate goal of Christ in mind was useless, and that, and that would be revealed to them by God. There you go. Someday they will stand before the Lord and they'll find out that all the things that they wasted their time on meant nothing. Okay, look to the prize. Got that picture of Jesus over there. You know, it's got him as the shepherd and it's got him as the crucified lamb. And, you, you know, I can look at that and I can say, that is the prize, is to understand him in the fullness and what he has done. Because you have to keep reminding yourselves that Jesus is God. The man is a man, but he is the God-man. He is God incarnate. This is what God has done in Christ. He has come and he has dwelt among us. So we're looking at a man, but at the same time, we're looking at the man who is God. And as hard as that is to understand, he is fully God and fully man, that's what the Bible teaches. And so we wanna set our eyes on him. We wanna set our goal as him and we wanna attempt to be like him and we want to understand everything about him because he is the one that is going to reveal himself to us forever those eternal years that we were talking about forever he's going to reveal himself to us and we'll never ever get tired of it that's what's incredible we will never get tired of it there will always be something that will keep us interested john and 10 30 john 10 30 are one absolutely we're one However it is, whatever God is doing, he is doing it through his son for us to understand. Note that he does not say, Paul, here, by Christ Jesus. They have not kept their eyes on him as they should have. He should be the chief desire of their heart. And so God, Father, Son, and or Holy Spirit would reveal to them the error of their ways. God's intent is for the Son to be exalted in us. That is what God wants us. That is what he hopes that we will be willing to strive for. And it's a very difficult time. It's a very, you know, there are times where your head hurts trying to learn theology and learn what's proper, but it is right. It is the right thing. Life application. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. Striving towards him, him, him as our goal. We are to emulate him now, endeavoring, endeavoring to be more and more like him until we are perfected in him. Okay, this is where we should have our hope. This is where we should have our goal. Everything should be centered on this fact, everything. Whatever we do, it should be with the thought of glorifying him in our lives. As difficult as that is at times, as tiring as it is, whatever it is, it's worth it every single thing we do. And Paul is the perfect example. Go and look at some of the things that he says elsewhere. He says, I was shipwrecked. You know, I was uh, shipwrecked. I was uh, persecuted by the beasts or whatever. He just goes through all of the trials that he had faced. Why? Why? Because he wanted to pursue Christ. He wanted to tell people about Christ. He wanted to have Christ in his life to the fullest extent. Otherwise, why would you even bother with something like that? You know, I just, I, the, the guy that does um, uh, the Jesus, um, uh, you know, the uh, Jose, what, what's the... I don't know. Uh, Jesus Jesus Crew, thank you. I couldn't get that second word. Okay, he's just been over in Kenya. Did you see the videos? Okay, 
He, he, the guy that's been here several times with yeah, the long hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, uh, he, he's one day he's in Austin, Texas, and they're having something, and he's handing out tracks. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. next day he's in Washington D.C. and he's handing out tracks. And the next day he's flying to Africa. He gets there and he's in Nairobi, and then he's going up to here, and he's just he's constantly going telling people about Jesus. Man, it's just unbelievable. But he is doing what Paul would have done. If Paul lived today, he'd be taking airplanes. He'd be getting out and he'd go, be going to all these places and telling them, this is it, people. Are you just, just great, yes. I have fought the good fight. He said it's a fight. Yeah, it is a fight. fight. Absolutely. I have finished the course. Right. His, God's plan for him, he said, I've finished that. And I have kept the faith. The faith. Yep, faith all the way through that's uh, Timothy 4 8 isn't it? 2 Timothy right 2 Timothy yes 2 yeah, Timothy two, 4 7 4 7 yeah. oh, it's wonderful words and he says elsewhere you know it's I'm not beating the air okay I'm I, it, it, all the things that he says that he's doing everything is a, a goal for him you know this thing you, you said press and it was a whole different idea than I had in mind press you know I, I looked at it like, like he was in the the harness, right, 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 pushing forward, and 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 Matthew says, you know, take my yoke upon you and right. learn of me. I'm making all you. You know, he he was in there. He was, and he, he was obedient. Somebody was driving that. Absolutely. <laughs> that team, you know? Well, you know, you got to figure now. When Paul is on the road to Damascus and he is literally persecuting the church, okay, and then he realizes that what he was doing was completely 100% contrary. To what was appropriate that would change anybody hopefully yeah. you know hopefully the thing is that he never let that die there are people that have their lives changed completely and eventually they slide back into where they were and there are some people that have their lives excuse me they have their lives changed and they just keep going and going and going and you know everybody's different but paul never ever kept his eyes off of the prize that he had seen on that day when that's, he was... In Acts, he, he rehearsed that to everybody who asked him and when he was before the Felix and all these Oh, people. yes. You know, I, I did this. This is what I did. I got changed on that Damascus Road. Yeah. You know, he kept saying, I'm, I'm a changed man. Yeah, what was it then when uh, not Festus stood up and said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Oh, you're right. you're yeah. crazy. He said, I'm not. I wish everybody was like me, yeah. he said. <laughs> okay, well, that is coming up. We got four sermons coming up in um, uh, after next week. This is this week, and then next week we have Deuteronomy 34. That'll be the last Deuteronomy sermon. Then we have four sermons from Acts 26. Oh. So, yeah, okay. So I've let out just enough. I haven't told anybody else, and the only person that knew that, I think, until now, other than Ron, who asked me to do it, is Doug over in Ireland because he's the one that has to do the, you know, I, I give him all the sermons in advance. So he knows what they are, but other than that, I haven't told anybody that. But we'll be in Acts chapter 26 for you four know, he sermons. He sent me a thing on this piece also. He said a good one, that's, that's one to keep. What's know, that? Doug. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he boy. He responded, you know, every, every once in a while I hear from him if he likes something that's good. Well, good. <laughs> good. Okay. So we're there's in, nobody watching. That nope. knows about this upcoming sermons, right? I don't think anybody did. I don't think, if I told they anybody, <laughs> the what? They are now. Oh, well, so. they all know now. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's that fine because good. it's coming in another week. But that—that's what's coming, and uh, the reason why is because Ron has been pestering me about this. Pestering? For, yeah, pestering, and he's a pesterer, and because he. Pest
triggered me. I finally broke down and said, okay, we're going to do it. But, you know, I could have gone on and on with this. I could have done a series that went on for, you know, a hundred sermons just from Acts 26. But I just kept it to four. And therefore, they're all the same thing. And nobody knows what the theme is except Ron. But um, they're all different approaches from that one theme. So it's kind of, I hope they're good. Uh, I will say this much that every one of them deals with previous sermons every one of them so if you've heard all of the sermons you're going to hear a lot of repetition but it is to make a point about something that Ron wanted so there you go four sermons and then we'll be into Joshua okay and I've already typed all of Joshua 1 and Joshua 2 and I'll start Joshua 3 next week great great passage Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 I think are just wonderful wonderful okay so um, 316 only let us live up to what we have already attained. Uh, 16, right? Yeah, that's very short. This one says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Hmm. Okay, oh. now this one does say, the NU text, and that's what I was looking at, we got the uh, footnotes here, uh, omits the word rule and the rest of the verse. And so I was trying to figure why you stopped so, and I was comparing. So I'm going to read mine again. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Does yours footnote that at all? No, it doesn't. It just says, uh, and it's not even... Um the verse so no there's no footnote about that so okay well I don't like it when when people have something that a different text uh, says or doesn't say I'd like when they footnote it and they when they don't do. what's that they usually do I'm well sure. I know and I don't know, understand why they wouldn't do that there that's that's kind of a, a failing of that translation that they, they did the not include mind. that yeah they weren't of the same mind that's exactly right okay the word nevertheless is given to show that there are different degrees of maturity within the body. In other words, Paul said, as many as are mature in the previous verse. But there really are none who are exactly on the same level as maturity. And I've talked about that before. I've, if you think about it, there are, we'll just say that there are a billion Christians in the world today. I'm talking about saved believers. I have no idea how many there are. There might be three, there might be seven billion, whatever. Okay, I'm just giving an example. Um, billion believers not one of them is on the same level okay right. not one of them every single person is on a different level and we have to remember that okay different people have different levels for different reasons as i said some of them may be in uganda and until isaac came along an entire village didn't have any bible and now he's getting bible into their hands but the next village over that he does intend to has no bible at all all they have is heard the word of Jesus, and they said, okay, I believe that, and they're saved, okay? And so they are on a completely different level than the people that are in America that have got Bibles all over the house, that they've read the Bibles, they've studied the different translations, they know the differences between that verse and this verse in these two different texts. And Okay, we're all on different levels, okay? And we need to remember that. I, I'm making a point here, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to uh, explain this because I had somebody that got upset at me saying this in a class one time, and I said, I don't care if it upsets everybody. This is what the Bible says, okay? You go into Papua New Guinea, and you say to the people, this is the gospel that will get you saved. They don't have any Bible, 
There's no word translated in their tongue. Everybody got that? These people, Ray Willen, he goes into a village and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus who did this for you. Okay? And the whole village says, all right. I can't believe it. God did this for us. He died for our sins. He rose again. Jesus, God in Jesus, died for our sins. He rose. He was buried. He rose again. And they accept that gospel. Are they saved? Yes. Do you believe in eternal salvation? You did okay. <laughs> Ray Willett dies the next day. Does that affect their salvation? Okay. They have no word because Ray never had time to translate the Bible. Everybody got that? Okay. One year and three months later, Mormons come in. And Mormons build a church. And Mormons are very good about building the exact same church in every place they go to. They wear the same clothes. They do all these same things. Okay, They build a church and they start telling about Jesus as it is presented. Will any of those people lose their salvation if they go into that church? No. The answer is no. They're sitting in a Mormon church. They believed the gospel originally and they accepted it and they were saved. They had no Bible to direct them beyond the gospel. They will not lose their salvation. But having said that, their children are now being raised in a Mormon church. Will those children ever be saved? No. no. They have, unless the parents tell them the truth before the Mormons get their fingers into them. Everybody got that? I don't care what anybody says to me about that particular issue. Those people are on a different level than you. And just because you're sitting there in your church, fat, dumb, and happy, I think you know who I'm talking about. If you don't, I'll tell you later. You're sitting in your church, fat, dumb, and happy, and you think that you have all of the answers in the world, and you're going to look down on people that receive Jesus Christ, that he saved them, and you have become the arbiter of their salvation because you don't like the fact that they are now attending a Mormon church. That's the height of hypocrisy. Those people had nothing except the word of God coming from a missionary, and they believed it, and they were saved. And Paul says that when you hear that gospel, you are saved, and then he says what he says, and we said it almost every class that we've ever been in, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You are sealed as a guarantee. If you can't understand that, then you probably need to go back and start all over with your theology. If you believe that those people, that Jesus would reject them because they had nothing else except the word that saved them and some shark comes in and leads them astray, that's not their fault. Christ will never lose a person that came to him, ever. Charlie, I think of that guy and I just, oh, yes. What about 1 Corinthians seven fourteen? One Corinthians, yes, I understand. I mean, from what I understand the scripture, if you have children like that, probably undo them. With I understand. Okay. They are covered, but at a point, they're going to have to make their own choice. And so until that point, and I'm not the one that decides that. All I know is that that is dealing with marriage, but at the same time, the ultimate purpose of Paul's words is to say that they are sanctified by the believing parent. As long as those children, and I don't know what the age is, I don't, I'm not the one to determine that. I can't read into the Bible what it says, but that's a really good point that you made. 1 Corinthians 7.14 protects children. Those children are sanctified by a believing parent. And that's why Paul says that you as a believer are not allowed to leave an unbelieving spouse. 
you are forbidden from that. But the unbelieving spouse can leave the believer. In such cases, he says, you are not bound. Okay? That's Paul's words. But the total extent of that, I don't know. All I know is that God is infinitely gracious and he will never do wrong. Okay? But that brings in a... Can we help you, sir? Uh, oh, that's our roadkill... Roadkill goulash. This is the homeless guy that uh, he sells roadkill goulash, and he's bringing a buy for us. Thank you, sir. Yep. All right. How's your wife doing? Okay. Do you know Daddy loves baby? I just embarrassed my son. Okay. Have a great night. We love you. Bye. Bye. Okay. <laughs> there. So I know that doesn't answer your question, except to tell you that I trust. I trust completely God to do the right thing in that. But beyond that, I don't know. I don't know what the age is. The Bible doesn't say. People email me that question a lot. What is the age of accountability? You know, I doubt if there is an age, it's probably a state. Because I'll say something, that if there is a person that's born, say, in that village with Down syndrome, and he lives with his parents for the rest of his life, I would assume that God's grace will cover that person that never came to the ability to reason out the gospel. I don't know that. I'm not going to make any adamant or dogmatic interpretations of that because I can't. All I know is that God will do the right thing. Doesn't Paul okay. cover here? Uh, where? Mature? Yeah, well, mature, and that's right. But what is that state is what well, I'm saying because know. you can it's have a, a you can have a child that's three years old that really understands mm -hmm. something. Yeah, right. You can explain that to them, and they say, I'm not going to accept that. And you can have a 20-year-old that doesn't get it. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And that's one thing. We will leave that one completely in the capable hands of the Lord. But anyway, the, the point isn't so much the people that are uh, coming into that aberrant teaching. The point is those that were saved. They will never lose that salvation. And I, I get so upset at people that, that will find a reason. Oh, yeah, I believe in eternal salvation. And then they turn around and they just completely tear that doctrine apart with what they say. And I, I, I just don't like that when people do that. You know, it, it just, I find it very, very difficult when people, they know better than God. We don't. We know that God is, is truthful, and when he says he saved somebody, that person is saved. Done. Okay. All right. I'm going to read this again. There really um, uh, are many as uh, mature in the previous verse. There are really none who are ex on exactly the same level of maturity. Some had heard Paul speak many times and were well grounded in their understanding of the work of Christ. Some may have missed those meetings or had come more recently to the faith. And some of them simply may have been incapable of understanding the more difficult issues which were presented to them. Whatever the state of the individual was, and that's every person on this planet, we're all in a different level of understanding. And for whatever reasons, to that degree, to which they were mature, he instructs. Whatever degree you are of your maturity in the word, Paul instructs another lettuce verse. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, arguments and divisions serve no valid purpose if they do not involve heresy or major doctrinal differences. And so when I tell somebody, you don't need to email me on this because my mind is made up. It is something that is major doctrinal difference or a heresy. There's no point in debating that with people. I'm telling you, if somebody is saved eternally, there's no need for you to email me about losing your salvation. 
if you're going to make the point that you can lose your salvation. Because I've already told you that salvation is eternal. That is a major point of doctrine. You are never going to change my mind on it. It will never happen because it is explicit. The word of God is explicit. If there's something that's minor and you want to niggle over it, send me an email and we can go back and forth. But if something is clear and explicit and it's just simply wrong, why would you debate somebody on that? You've told them what's right. If they don't agree with you, they can go out. As I said, I've said this a couple times in the past year, it's time to say it again. We come to Christ and then we have the rest of our lives to screw up our own doctrine, okay? That's our choice. You can either follow proper doctrine or you can go and get onto all of these tangents that go nowhere, okay? And you can uh, argue over things until you're blue in the face, but some things are explicit. And if they are explicit, then why would you bother people about that? Why would you do that, okay? When the end of life comes for an individual, it won't be the lesser points of doctrine that people speak about at their funeral. Actually, that's not true though, because I will tell you, I went to a funeral one time, I won't say where or who, but the wife stood up and she said, well, at least now he knows what the Nephilim are. And I thought, his whole life, she's worried about that point of doctrine in his life. Are they angels or are they half angels, humans? Or, and I, I, I just crawled into my head and I thought, that is the one thing that this guy struggled over and he was way up in the church that he was in. Oh, this amazing. wasn't just somebody sitting in the back pew and, and you know, wearing a tinfoil hat, okay? So I, I'm kind of wrong in this analysis here. That was the one thing that the wife was concerned about. At least he knows what the Nephilim are now. Well, I can tell you, it's the Nephilim are exactly what the Bible portrays. The sons of God that are listed in, I just had somebody email me about this today or a couple days ago and I sent him the videos and I said, refresh, you'll remember, this is the answer. It's not that angels are sleeping with men and you have a, a hybrid of people that are out on the earth. That is irresponsible theology, it is not correct, okay? but. I said here it won't be the lesser points of doctrine that people speak about at their funeral. In most cases, I will qualify that. Instead, it will be that they loved Christ, they spoke out boldly for him, and were willing to walk in harmony with others who may have disagreed. When you go to a funeral, that is usually what you hear about people. This person loved Jesus. You'll hear that more than anything else. And then he loved to help other people. Okay, and they'll talk about he went to, you know, he sent out things, Burke kicks off tonight. Oh, we send out people, things to help people with their theology all the time. Or Jim dies tomorrow and it says, uh, uh, they'll say he went to the projects every Saturday, okay? We're gonna have something good and positive to say about them, not small little things, unless it's about the Nephilim apparently. But um, uh, let's see here, they loved Christ Jesus, they spoke boldly for him, they were willing to walk in harmony with others who may have disagreed, even over things that ultimately made little difference in the overall scheme of things, okay? When Marcus Polonius is laying in his coffin, nobody with a modicum of decency would come up and say, he believed that the church replaced Israel, and so he was a really crummy Christian. You're just not gonna see that at a funeral, okay? Instead, they will speak about what united them, not about the things he was wrong on and which will be revealed to him by Christ. If this is how we speak about one another at death, is it really, really necessary to tear them apart in this life? Life application. Doctrine matters. It is right for teachers to hold the line on what is proper doctrine. 
but when two teachers with opposing views speak to one another, it shouldn't be for tearing one another down. I've said about R.C. Sproul at least 150,000 times that when I would meet him or when I said it, when he went to see a presentation by Sproul one time, I said, if you do meet him, please go up and give him a big hug for me and then punch him in the head. Okay. So uh, that is fine. But you I know, didn't either. he didn't, he did neither. But anyway, uh, you know, so there are things that we can disagree on and there are things that we can agree on. He was wrong on points of doctrine. One of my friends emailed me about him yesterday. Really great guy. And I told him, you know what? I know that when I get up in front of the Lord, I'm going to find out a lot of points of doctrine that I was wrong in. I know that. I hate the thought of that. I hate that I would teach somebody something wrong, but I know I'm going to find that out. I disagree with R.C. Sproul because he is wrong on those points of doctrine, but I also love to listen to him on other points of doctrine. And so there you go with that. Um, uh, when two teachers with opposing views speak to one another, it shouldn't be for tearing one another down. Minds are not changed that way, and it is only harmful to the fellowship. Let us learn to hold our tongues at times when our lofty opinions are unwanted or when they will only cause division. Okay, so when I'm sitting here as a teacher, I am supposed to teach you the doctrine that I believe is 100% correct. Nothing else, and that is what I'm going to do. Okay, but if R.C. Sproul was to come in here, he's dead now, but if he was to come in here and say, you know, I, I was in town and I needed a church to attend, and I can I attend your Bible study? I wouldn't sit there and belittle him during the, the, the talk. You know, I may go around the bush doing <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to openly say, R.C., you know, you're such an idiot. I'm just, you know, it's just not what you do, okay? And when somebody's laying in the casket, you're going to find good things to say about him, okay? So, unfortunately, I found out after having been to many, many funerals, and I know all of us have, that it's a very unfortunate thing, but I've said this many times, is that everybody in the casket is going to heaven. There's never been a... a funeral that I've gone to, even with a person that had nothing to do with Jesus, where I didn't hear them say, he's with him. He's in heaven now. And they, the, even the people that say that might not believe in Jesus. They just believe in whatever. He's, that's yeah, all that's, everybody, everybody that's in the casket is going to heaven. I've never been to a funeral that said otherwise. And that's a very sad place to be because, you know, not everybody in the casket is going to heaven. That's 100% for certain. But that is the attitude that is always presented, always at funerals. Okay, we got time for one more. Let me see, 317, uh, yes, yeah, we'll 15, get that one done. 317. 17, before we do that, though, yes. one of the people, whenever I involve with anybody who's like, you know, you can lose your salvation, not once have I heard them say, look, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to lose your salvation. Right. They never say that. It's no. It's like, just like, you're going to lose your salvation. You're not a Christian because you don't I'm like going. Absolutely. Like, when you go to evangelize, so he, the point he's making is that if you go out with somebody that believes you can lose your salvation and they start telling you about, telling another person about Jesus, they're going to say, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus can save you, blah, blah. They never bring up the fact that, oh, and you know, you're going to lose your salvation someday. They never bring that up. Okay. But as soon as somebody's saved, the next thing you hear them say is, oh, you can't be saved because... Okay. 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Okay, this one, see, that's an apostate version of the Bible. You need to throw that away right now. I'm kidding. I'd, 
It's the attitude. That's I'm just saying what you were saying. Okay, this one begins with brethren. That yours. That's the no, fifth word in. Last. See, terrible. Okay, brethren, <laughs> join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Okay, there you go. Paul, having addressed the doctrinal error of the Judaizers, you know, I'm gonna stop right there. The word pattern. Okay, uh, the King James Version. I, I just had to uh, include this in something I sent to somebody recently. The word pattern in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses talks about uh, make it according to the pattern you saw on the mountain, right? And then in the book of Hebrews, they say exactly the opposite. Instead of saying these are the copies of the heavenly thing, they say these are the pattern. And so it's not just an error, it's a, it's a contradiction. Okay, right in the King James Version. Okay, and that just came to mind when we saw the word pattern. So just so you know, there aren't just errors in the King James Version. There are contradictions. I mean, errors. That's a big one. Okay, here we go. Sorry, I know that was a diversion, but we came to the word pattern and it came to mind. Uh, Paul, having addressed the doctrinal error of the Judaizers, will now set out on another course of correction concerning doctrine. He will address those who use their freedom in Christ as license to sin. This is what he's going to be talking about. Does anybody know what that is known as? What is, it's a big long term, the antimonium heresy, okay? Antinomium, antinomian is a word that means without law, completely, ah, uh, and then uh, timonian, whatever. It's completely, you are free, so you can sin, okay, because Read it again. He will address those who use freedom in Christ as a license to sin. And there are people that actually teach this all over. You know, you go to churches and they actually say, well, you're, you're saved and so you can sin. Okay, now there's a problem with this is because I teach eternal salvation. People will accuse me of saying that, well, then you can do anything you want and you're not gonna lose your salvation. And that is true, but that does not mean that you are to do that. And there's a difference between the two, but they on the side that say you can lose your salvation will lump all of that onto you and say, see, you teach that. That's not at all what I teach. I teach that Paul says, don't do this, don't do this, you are to do this, blah, 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 right? But they will tell people that because somebody says you can't lose your salvation, that they are teaching licensed descent. So Paul has already said you can't lose your salvation by telling you that you are sealed forever. Okay, now he is going to tell you that you are not free to sin. You can sin, but you are not free to sin. And there's a difference between the two. So when somebody tries that, that's called a red herring. They, you're walking down a path with a dog and the dog is chasing somebody. Well, somebody doesn't want to get caught. So they take a red herring and they drag it across the path. And all of a sudden the dog goes off this way instead of going the path where he actually is going. Everybody got that? That's what a red herring is. Okay, so. Corinthians says someplace uh, yes, that's it, right. uh, about a cloak. Don't use your yeah. salvation as a cloak to to sin. Absolutely. And it also says, oh, we've only got four minutes, so I got to finish this. Okay. But uh, we'll, remind me, we'll talk about that next week. Okay, for now he begins with brethren. He is addressing saved believers in Christ, and he is identifying himself with them. With this understanding, he says, join in following my example. The phrase is unique in the New Testament, and it indicates being joint imitators. He is saying that he is an imitator of Christ, and he desires them to jointly follow in this imitation of the Lord. 
The pulpit commentary notes that he changes the singular number to the plural, modestly shrinking from proposing himself alone as their example, okay? From this point, and understanding that all are to be united in imitating Christ, he next says, and note those who so walk. The metaphor of the race was used in the previous verses is now changed to walk, and thus a walk of life. The conduct in this life, even if it is a race with our eyes on the goal, is to be one which is in imitation of the life of Christ. In this walk, there is an example laid out for them. This is seen in the words, as you have us for a pattern. In a broad perspective, he shows that there are two types of people who are to be found in a church. Those who imitate Christ and have their minds, hearts, and affections on heavenly things, and those who are earthly and carnal. The, and I will say this before I go on, if they are saved, they are all saved. These people are just as saved as these people, even if these people are just living carnally, okay? And that's why we, Paul first spoke about everybody being on a different level. We mentioned that in the previous verse. Everybody is on a different level in Christ, okay? So um, the apostles and their designated representatives had set the first example, and he desires that they follow in that. Those he will describe in the coming verses will be given as examples of what not to emulate. Life application. In the quickly apostatizing church of today, the carnal is growing almost exponentially. It is incumbent on us to go to the word itself and to follow it as closely as possible. This will keep us from going astray. This is what the word is for. Let us not deviate from it. And unfortunately, there are saved people that are in these churches that have started out running the race well and they've gone just like this, following these apostate. I know my mom attends one of these churches at times because she loves the music there. And so she listens to this music that she grew up with and she has to be around these people that were once following Christ and not tolerating it and now they're just following what the rest of the world is doing. Oh, abortion, kill more babies and do this and do that. Okay, if they are saved, they are saved, but those people will not receive the reward that they otherwise could have because they were not willing to learn the word and to be obedient to the people, or I'm sorry, to the precepts that the people that gave us the word of God have given. And that's a problem. And that's why I would ask if I die tonight on the way home because the uh, roadkill goulash spilled on me and I got distracted. If I die tonight, I would pray that you would find a church that would hold fast to the word of God. And if they don't, get up and walk right out of it. Okay, that is what I would pray more than anything else is that you do not allow this world to overtake you, but instead you overcome this world. Okay, we're just on time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you that it is a light to our feet. Thank you that we have the choice to do these things. And if we don't do them, as long as we're saved, you are so gracious to keep saving us but we will lose the reward at the end of the day. Lord, help it to not happen in the people that are trying so hard to learn your word and to stand fast in this ever-increasing wicked world. Lord, keep us from those things. Keep us
directed to you and remind us of your goodness, even in our times of difficulty. How good you are. We do love you. We thank you and we praise you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Just in time. Okay, back this up. Let's see here. We're going to go to uh, break. Okay.